are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Here's Nate. Well, as we approach 1 Samuel chapter 8, perhaps one thing that would be good to remember is that 1 and 2 Samuel are transitional in nature. In other words, we are seeing the development of the leadership of the nation of Israel. At the beginning of 1 Samuel, of course, the prominent leader is a man named Eli, whose sons, as the high priest, were out of control and abusing the priestly privileges. Samuel then rises onto the scene and replaces Eli along with his household. And Samuel restores order into the nation and restores really, in one sense, spiritual vitality and power to the nation. Uh, They were losing to the Philistines under Eli and the remnants of his watch and leadership. But under Samuel, the nation was revived a bit and they began to experience the presence of God once again. But of course, 1 Samuel is going to transition us from Samuel to King Saul, the first king in Israel, shifting the nation from a theocracy with leadership consisting of prophets and priests into a nation that now has kings ruling over it. Saul being the first and then, of course, transitioning to the glorious reign of David. And so in chapter 7, we saw great victory restored to the people of Israel. But we pick it up here in chapter 8, verse 1. And really, it's a fast forward to the latter days of Samuel's life. It says, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons, verse 3, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Now, this first little paragraph is fascinating in so many ways. First of all, Samuel transferred some of his authority to his sons. They were helping him lead the nation by serving as judges over Israel. But of course, the glaring thing that we notice here is that they had rejected, verse 3, the ways of Samuel. Even though Samuel was a godly man, in their older years, they decided to walk away from the Lord, walk away from the ways of Samuel. And it says there in verse 3, turn aside after gain. These men were greedy, covetous men. And so the fascinating thing, of course, is that they had such an incredibly godly heritage, yet they walked away from the Lord. In fact, their names, their very names indicate the heritage that they'd received. Joel, his name means Jehovah is God. And Abijah, his name means God is Father. They had godly names, but they had godless lives. Now, on one hand, many attempt to blame Samuel for the lack of spiritual vitality in the life of his sons. You look at the end of chapter 7 and it tells us that Samuel 
was going in a circuit from place to place doing ministry, the accusation or the inference is that, well, Samuel was probably just too busy with the ministry and not really paying attention to his family, which of course is possible. I don't know that it's probable with Samuel, however. He seems to have been a godly man in almost every area of his life. Not a word of his fell to the ground. If ever there were sons who had a good opportunity to know the Lord, to receive the Lord, to have a wonderful model in front of them, you would think that it would be the sons of Samuel. Later in the Old Testament, God will hold Samuel up as one of the preeminent figures of the Old Testament. I think it serves more as a simple cautionary tale that God has no grandchildren and there is no guarantee that any of our children will serve the Lord. It causes us to cry out to God in prayer. And so Samuel's sons did not walk in the ways of their father. Now, as a result of this, it says in verse four, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now here in these two verses, the people of Israel, the elders specifically, make a curious request of Samuel. At first they approach him, they say, Listen, you know that your sons do not walk in your ways. This wasn't something that had escaped Samuel's mind. He saw it, he understood it, and more than likely did not want to repeat the error of Eli, his predecessor. And so Samuel would be open to some kind of change of leadership. But it's curious because the elders come to Samuel and say, listen, you're godly, but your sons are not godly. So Give us a king like all the nations to judge us. Now, the, of course, ironic thing there is that a king would sit on the throne. And who would be the king after him? Well, his sons. There would be a hereditary kingship that would be established. And so they're wanting Samuel to remove himself and his sons in order to put in another man along with his sons. And so uh, just a little bit of folly here in one sense. And in another sense, because they want to be a king, uh, they want to have a king over them like all the other nations. They wanted to be like everyone else. You know, it's normal, I think, to want to be normal. But I think what we need to understand as believers is that there are plenty of times where it is dangerous to want to be normal. We are called to a different kind of life. We've been separated to the gospel of God. We are being created, Titus 2, verse 11 through 14, as God's own special people, zealous for good works. We should understand the tendency in our heart to want to be like everyone else, but we should resist that tendency, resist that temptation. Now, in one sense, perhaps this wasn't all that of a, an evil request, just the desire for a king, the desire to be like everyone else, absolutely. But to have a king, it seems as if God had promised such a leader previously to the nation. So it's not that big of a deal that they're asking for their king. Now, the 
bigger question is, what was the context of this request? Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 12, Samuel will say this to the people. He'll say in verse 12, when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. So it's possible that this Ammonite king named Nahash had been coming up against the people of Israel at this time, and that fear caused them to make this request of Samuel. But the thing, verse 6, displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Samuel's response to their request was very simple. He was angry at this request. In fact, displeased, it tells us there in verse 6. But instead of responding directly to the people, he went to God in prayer. What a wonderful example Solomon sets for us. Proverbs 16 verse 32 tells us, that whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. And that was certainly Samuel. Calmly, even though he's displeased and upset, he goes to the Lord and cries out to God in prayer, where God gives him perspective about this request of the people. He actually tells Samuel, Obey the voice of the people. They've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. Uh, the people were rejecting God, not just Samuel. I think many times a believer will experience this fellowship of his sufferings, experiencing a little rejection, when in reality it's not the rejection of you, it's the rejection of the God that you represent, the Lord that you serve. And so God made a decision here to give the people what they asked for. Uh, one of the scariest things that we could ever get, our request. So Samuel, verse 10, told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war, and the equipment of his chariots. So Samuel here, before he goes through the process of being led by the Lord to select a king for the people of Israel, uh, Samuel goes through a list of the regulations of the kingship. Just letting them know what, what the king would be like, what it would be like to be a nation under a king. And the fascinating thing is that there are zero redeeming features. Every requirement and every detail is oppressive in nature. And the first thing that he mentions here is that 
the king would be a dictator who established a military at the expense of the people. And then he goes on in verse 13, and the repeated word in these next few verses is the word take, and secondly, the word best. The king will take the best of everything amongst you. He will, verse 13, take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer in that day. And so he lets them know, listen, you have a king now who is a giver. He gives you the best and he does not take, but you're going to receive now a king that is brutal over you. And you'll eventually cry out to God, but God will not answer you on that day. You have to cry out to your king. But the people refused, verse 19, to obey the voice of Samuel. This warning fell on deaf ears. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They, they wanted a man that they could follow, like all the other nations, this unique theocracy. I mean, they were so different as a nation. They'd grown tired of it, tired of looking to God for direction. They wanted a man that they could see. Rather than walking by faith, they wanted to walk by sight. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. So Samuel simply takes this information and he repeats it before the Lord, who of course already knows, but Samuel is going through that beautiful process of casting all his anxieties and cares upon the Lord because the Lord cared for him. First Peter five, verse seven. And so uh, now the table is set and eventually Samuel will be led by the Lord to select their future king. Now in chapter 9, verse 1, we're introduced to this king before he even knows he's chosen by the Lord. Verse 1, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And so you have this man, a man named Kish. He's a man of wealth, uh, which also could be translated a man of standing or perhaps even with a military connotation, meaning a brave man, a man of bravery. This description is never used of Saul, but it is used of his father. 
Kish has a son named Saul, of course. His name in Hebrew comes from the origin of a word that means asked for. And so uh, he was asked for and he would be given to the nation. Now, it's almost comical, the detail of what this young man looked like. He was handsome. That's repeated twice there in verse 2. And he was taller than any of the people. Every characteristic mentioned of Saul in this text is outward and physical in nature. None of them are spiritual. None of them were important to God, who, of course, as we'll see later in 1 Samuel, looks upon the heart. It's almost as if God is humorously saying, you want the appearance of safety. Uh, You want to feel secure in the arms of a king that you can look upon and walk by sight. Well, if you're going to walk by sight, you might as well just go all in. You might as well get the most handsome, tallest man you can possibly find. And of course, Saul eventually through his own rebellion would be rejected by the Lord and God would choose a man not because of his stature and not because of his handsomeness, but he would choose a man because of his heart that was like the heart of the Lord. Uh, And of course, David would be that man. Now, the donkeys, verse 3, of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son Saul, Take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. So they're actually traveling a pretty serious distance in order to recover or retrieve or find these lost donkeys of Saul's father. And they're just finding no success, Saul and this servant. And when they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. You know, we've been gone for so long now, maybe we should just get home before they start worrying less about these animals that are lost and more about us, you know, his own son and his servant. And so verse six, but he said, behold, there is a man of God in this city. This is the response of Saul's servant. And he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. A couple of interesting things stand out at this particular event where Saul's servant comes up with the idea to go and visit the man of God who will discover would be Samuel. First of all, it's interesting that the servant appears to be more persistent and imaginative than Saul himself. Uh, Secondly, the servant speaks of the man of God as a man of honor. He was a man who loved the Lord, served the Lord, so he was worthy of of honor. Also, we notice that all that he says comes true. This was especially the Old Testament requirement for those Old Testament prophetic figures. They had to be accurate in their prophecies, specific and accurate in their 
prophecies, Deuteronomy 18, verse 20 to 22. But the wonderful thing here is that Saul now is going to go through a process where he comes face to face, shoulder to shoulder, rubs elbows with a man of God in Samuel. And if I could just say it like this, Saul will become aware of God's work in his life by spending time with Samuel. So often just by being around godly folks, godly people with godly fellowship, we discover some of the deeper purposes of God for our lives. We've got to make a priority of being around godly folks, men and women that we look up to in the body of Christ, people who will challenge us and motivate us, people who will serve as examples for us in the body of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13 tells us that we are to note those who are over us in the Lord. And Saul's life would never be the same as a result of spending time in Samuel's presence. Then Saul, verse 7, said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. And formerly, verse 9, in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. So Saul had a question. His question was, well, what will we bring the man of God? This was common courtesy in those days to bring a prophet a gift when you were consulting him. It could be very modest. It could be very lavish. It was just a token gesture of respect. This is, was in many ways how these prophets would survive and these prophets would live. And of course, we know in our New Testament era that we're to share in all good things with those who are over us in the Lord. Pastors and teachers, those who, who are responsible for us spiritually, teaching us the word of God, sharing in all good things. Paul told Timothy that a laborer is worthy of his wages, and uh, especially those who labor in word and doctrine. Now, it's interesting as well there in verse 8, because their whole concern was, let's get around the man of God so that he can tell us our way. So they wanted to go find out about where the donkeys were, but God would reveal to them through Samuel and in this interaction with him that Saul would be the future king in Israel. So often our thoughts are so much lower than the thoughts and the mindset of God. And then there is this little editorial note there in verse 9 concerning the title given to Samuel. They called him a seer back in those days, but at the time of the writing of 1 Samuel, that title had been replaced by the title prophet. Seer is a wonderful word to describe the office, however. Seeing things that normally are go unseen unless God opens their eyes. And so they go to seek this prophet. And of course, it causes those of us in the New Testament era 
to absolutely rejoice because we don't need a earthly mediator like this. We can go straight to our mediator, our advocate, our intercessor in heaven, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, as they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? And they answered, he is, behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way to the high place. It's interesting because everyone in this story is used by God to get Saul where he needs to be. The donkeys, the servant, his own father sending him on this mission. And now these young women who answer the question and give him detailed information about Samuel and also in verse 13, give him directions about the sacrifice that are very important for Saul's future. They say Samuel must bless the sacrifice. This, of course, in chapter 13, after Saul is anointed, after he becomes the king, this is part of the impetuous thing within Saul where he would not wait at a different time for Samuel to bless the sacrifice. And because he would not wait, God stripped the kingdom from him. And so here at the very beginning, these women are embedding this lesson by the leading of the Holy Spirit into Saul's mind. Samuel must bless the sacrifice. Don't do what you're not allowed to do, supposed to do, gifted to do, called to do. Just be the man that God has made you to be and be patient and be content with that particular role. Now the day, verse 15, before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man for the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Very gracious and gentle of God in allowing them to have a king. But he gives Samuel the heads up. And so when Samuel, verse 17, saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered, Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, and today you will eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your mind. As for the donkeys, verse 20, that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all the desire that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? I mean, this is a hint at what Samuel will prophesy over Saul. And Saul answered, am I not a Benjamite? And from the least of the tribes of Israel, I'm from this small and decimated little tribe. And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Saul is not presuming anything 
from Samuel, a real humility of heart, which we wish would last. Then Samuel, verse 22, took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you, of which I said, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, see, what was kept is set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat it with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. A great change here is occurring in Saul's life. As he eats this meat, I'm sure his mind is racing. What is it that is happening here? What is God doing? And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. So here they are departing, and as verse 27, they were going down to the outskirts of the city. Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he passed on, Stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. And Samuel would announce a wonderful thing into Saul's ear. It would be the word of the Lord, and it would change Saul's life forever. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.